Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. God through Isaiah. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, Paul. And from the voice of he who sits on the throne in the new heavens and new earth, behold, I am making all things new. You have conquered, O pale Galilean, and the world has gone gray from thy breath. Charles Swinburne. The world has gone gray from thy breath. Charles Swinburne puts those words at a character in one of his poems, but without doubt, they are his emotions, his bitterness, his anger in his at Christianity. For Charles Swinburne was a homosexual male, a practicing alcoholic, whose passions drove him in very perverted and violent ways. And he was living in Victorian England. In Victorian England, hard things could happen to you when you held that position or tried to live that life. And if you were in the military at that point, and you were found to be homosexual, a trial would be held and you could be put to death. It's in his hymn to Proserpine, sorry, <clears throat> that he uses those words, and he puts those words in the mouth of Julian the Apostate, the last of the pagan Roman empires. Julian was opposed to the rising tide of Christianity at becoming the predominant religion, and he wanted to go back to the times of the old gods, the Greek, the Roman gods, with their reveling, the Dionysian feast, the fa feasting and the drunkenness, debauchery, and following their own passions, and feeling unsuccessful, and then the poem in his dying breath, being a failure at opposing Christianity to stand and establishing that, the old gods, he's left dying saying, Thou hast conquered, O pale Galilean, and the world has grown gray from thy breath. And modern critics of Christianity will pile right on there. They think, like Swinburne, that somehow Christianity and its morality has sucked the joy, sucked the life out of the world. They've left the world. They, we, we have left the world, they think, in this grayness. Yet they fail to see the truth. God, grayness, no. Here's the truth. Our God is a party God. Our God is a party God. Seems a little striking, maybe. We're not dealing with this seriously enough. But God has invited us to a party, not to grayness. And he is the God of that party, so he's a party God. Now that, that phrase, I'll admit, 
our God is a party God is not mine. Came from, uh, I heard it through Peter Wilkes, preacher in San Jose, California, back in about 1990. And I think it was striking to people, a little bit shocking when he said that, because Peter was a very serious scholar. Uh, had taught doctoral students physics at a major university before he moved into preaching. And he was British, and he seemed to have that sometimes stern British face. And I think it shocked people when he started off his sermon with those words. He was preaching on a psalm, a psalm of thanksgiving. I don't remember anymore what psalm he preached on. I don't remember a single point of that sermon. I remember only those opening words. Our God is a party God. When Jesus came, he spoke more than once in a parable comparing the kingdom to a wedding feast with feasting, eating and drinking and joy and celebration. Don't tell the Baptist, but there probably was dancing. It was a Jewish wedding. Come on. Think of Jesus with a prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. What does the father do when the, one is, the son who is lost comes home? It's time to celebrate the lost one. Bring the fatted calf. Call all the people. It's time to party. And the tragedy of that parable is that the older brother walks away, rejecting the party, separate from his brother and now from his father. And think of the two parables before that, the lost sheep and the lost coin. We hear, there will be rejoicing in heaven over the one who is lost. And after the second one, it says, there will be rejoicing before the angels in heaven for the one that is found. And it seems like then the angels are, are just ready, always willing and eager to put on their dancing shoes. It's a celebration. It shouldn't surprise us. shouldn't surprise us that in the Gospel of John, the first miracle, miraculous sign that Jesus does is turning water into wine at a wedding feast. And there's a lot of symbolism in the jars, but we know there are six jars there. They hold between 20 and 30 gallons of water. And Jesus has them fill those up. And the water is turned into wine. And you can do it by the, new, the old math and multiply this out, or you can do the new math. That I, and any way you do it, Jesus made like a gazillion gallons of wine. Yeah. And even we have some problem with that. We need to gray this up a little bit. We don't want Jesus you know, to get the idea that Jesus is all about the party. You know, we don't we feel a little uncomfortable sometimes about letting Jesus be Jesus. Letting the Word say what the Word seems to actually say. I had a student come to me and he brought a paper his pastor had written and he put it in the bulletin for Sunday because it had to do with this passage and the title of the article was Did Jesus Really Make Wine at Cana? And then you got Absolutely Not. And he had a series of arguments which went from bad to worse. And his first one is 
How could the eternal Son of God make something that is condemned throughout the whole Old and New Testaments? And I silently thought, your pastor needs to read the Old and the New Testaments. And the arguments went down, and finally it was that Jesus had provided some divine nectar that no one had ever tasted before, and we don't know just what it was, but we know it was 100% non-alcoholic. We just can't let people think that Jesus is about to party. When John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus, what do they want to know? We fast, and the Pharisees fast. Why don't your disciples fast? Can the wedding guests mourn while the bridegroom is with them? It's party time. Jesus is characterizing that generation. And he says, what do I compare this generation to? And he gives examples and he says, he goes on and he says, John the Baptist came uh, not eating and not drinking. And they said he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking And they said, he is a glutton and a drunkard. And he associates with tax collectors and sinners. Certainly nobody identified Jesus with the starkness of John the Baptist. But remember that the Pharisees, when they will call him a drunkard and glutton, drunkard and glutton, that's slander. So that's kind of out of line. But somewhere... Somewhere Jesus comes and he is seen as one who brings this kingdom party to tax collectors and sinners and he eats with them, he drinks with them and he invites them to this kingdom. And he does it in the name of God. And that can get you killed. Don't misunderstand. I'm not telling you to go start drinking. <laughs> if you don't drink wine, don't go home and drink wine. If you drink wine, don't drink more of it. I'm not telling you that. It's symbolic of the abundance and the richness and the celebration that is before us. Yet our critics today still criticize us. They see us as demeaning to life, as dehumanizing, as oppressive. And they will move especially to some of those passages in the New Testament that speak about slaves, they speak about women. They see us as oppressive oppressive in terms of women and, and a complete failure when it comes to dealing with race, that it is not condemned in these texts. And one of those slices of text that they will use is those passages like in Ephesians 5 where Paul speaks to wives and husbands and children and father and uh, slaves and masters or the parallels in Colossians and Ephesians. I mean, Ephesians, Colossians, and in 1 Peter. Sorry. And by the way, I think I need, I broke in, it hit me just before the service or work class today. I'm going to say a couple of things about women and slaves, and it hit me that 
you might hear this in the context of what's happening in the news the last few days, Supreme Court rulings, protests, all of The first three uh, drafts of this sermon happened before that. And I'm not talking, so nothing I say should be interpreted in the context of what's going on right now. It's just the always truth. It's not something ripped from the headlines. It's before the headlines happen. That they see us, they see this refusal to condemn slavery, an oppressive treatment for women, and again, they miss the truth. The truth is, when you look at those passages, the very passages they would use to condemn us are evidence of the new thing that God is doing. God is bringing freedom. God is making all things new, even here. And especially the way you see that, I think, is when you compare what Paul and Peter will say in the context of the world they were in, in the Roman thinking, in the Greek thinking, Stoic philosophy that is there, you do not address spiritual and moral teaching to women, to children, to slaves. And Paul did just that. That is, none of those three in the Greek thought, children, wives, women, or slaves, are in a position to make those decisions. They seem to be incapable by nature of the kind of deliberative thought that allows you to make a spiritual decision and live that out. The woman, she's under the authority and only owes obedience to first her father and then if she's married to her husband and if the husband dies, she falls back under the authority of the father if he lives, still living, and if not to the eldest male in that family. The child, obviously, is there to be obedient. And the slave, certainly, the slave is just there for obedience. That is, it, it is the, the head of the household, the male, that uh, determines the religion for the family. That is, all of those decisions are summed up. You've got to be free to make a decision. And because of their obligations of obedience, Women and children or slaves cannot make that decision. They have no choice. But Paul and Peter address women, children, slaves as fully capable human beings. They are not less than human. He calls all of them to the same kind of discipleship. They can come to know, they can come to choose to follow Jesus, and he calls them to do that. They can discern what God is calling them to, and they are capable of living out. It is a radical newness. You don't hear that in the culture around them. Paul calls all of these to an equal discipleship of what the male is called to. And I know that can start to get a little nervous here. You know, what's he going to say? Where is he going to take us on this? And I'm being very careful. What I'm saying is basically for all of us, right? 
isn't everyone in this room equally calls to discipleship, to obey Christ and obey Christ alone? And those others, and we can all discern, as Paul will say, well, what is fitting, what is appropriate in the relationships we are in, and we can live that out. And uh, I think talking about this freedom, this equal freedom we have in Christ, this call all of us to discipleship, a full discipleship, and obedience to Christ, can start getting us in trouble. And a week ago, I turned 72, and I'm thinking about getting the energy together to try for 73, so I'm going to leave the woman's side of this alone because that just gets you in trouble. Let me slide over to the focus on slavery. Even when we show our critics how Paul and Peter will treat these categories of, in their world, not capable, and we show them how Paul calls all to discipleship, they will still critique us. You have failed in Scripture to condemn slavery. And they hold us accountable for that. And again, they miss some truth here. Now, yes, uh, there are a number of answers that would fit here. Um, but I think we got to just pay attention again to the culture. That in, in the Roman culture, some 30% of the population were slaves. In the cities, some of them, they would suggest it's closer to 40% are slaves. And so slavery is built into the basic economy of Rome. It is built into the social structure of Rome. To oppose slavery outright puts you in opposition to Rome. And there's still a living memory of the slave rebellion under Spartacus and others. You've heard of Spartacus. We don't know much about him historically, but Hollywood has cleared up all the details three or four times now. The only consistent thing in Hollywood is he never wears a shirt. But in each succeeding movie, I think he gets more muscular. Uh, that happened. The end of that slave rebellion was 71 B.C. That's not too far that people that are living that probably have their grandparents told them about that. They know that. And then we hear it in that rebellion, there were some 30,000 slaves who were put to death as a result of that rebellion. At the end, they said there were like 6,000 slaves that were kept alive, and they took them and had them crucified along that road from Rome down to the boot of the heel of Italy, the Via the Appian Way, 6,000 crucified. That road is about 120 miles. That gives you about 50 slaves crucified per mile. If I did the math right, about 105 feet and a half, if they're spread out equally between from slave to slave. I paced my driveway. If you put one slave at my front door, there'd be another slave almost halfway down 
my driveway, and there would be another one at the end of my driveway. That spacing crucified slaves for 120 miles. And they were left on those crosses as a message. And some of the, some of the skeletons they said were left were still on the cross two to three years later. Rome wanted to punish those slaves, but more, they wanted to leave a message. Oppose Rome, oppose slavery, and here's what you got. Paul knew that, and the slaves knew that. But Paul was not first concerned with transforming society and changing culture. He was first about seeing people being transformed. In fact, Paul will say that culture is in the process of dying. It's fading away. It will have an end. And so the eternal perspective brings him into the transformation of people. And if you're concerned about culture, ultimately if enough people become transformed, they begin transforming the values in the culture. Now, those passages about slaves... we find addressing just the slave on how to be a Christian, a disciple if you're a slave, if you're in this situation, or they speak to the master of how to be a master as a Christian toward your slaves, but they don't speak about them and how they react if both are Christians. If only someplace Paul had talked about that kind of situation, we would know more about his feelings about that. If only there was a letter where he wrote like to a master about a runaway slave and how to deal with them. And you're way ahead of me with Philemon. You know the story where we have Philemon and before I get into this story, one caveat is we have to distinguish always, I think, for us the difference between slavery in the Greek and Roman world and American slavery because we perceive Our background is so much in our American history where in Greek and Roman times, slavery was not race-based. The issue of slavery is separate from one of race and where in America we have slavery and the racist issue just layered over that and they've become intertwined. But in the Greek world, it wasn't that way. And we learn that Philemon, the letter is to Philemon and actually we'll see at the beginning that that there are a couple of you plurals where Paul is addressing the church. And there are a couple at the end, but very quickly, actually, it turns into you singular to Philemon. That is different than English. Greek has a separate form for you plural, for you singular. And in standard English, not southern English, there's no real difference. And on the printed page, it's the same. So it's kind of to the church, but it's really, really to Philemon. We learn from the beginning of the letter that the church meets in Philemon's house, which means he's probably got money. He's got a house large enough for the church to gather in, so he's probably a fairly wealthy man. Uh, We know that he has at least one slave, and if he's got a large house and he's a businessman, he probably has more. But we know he's got at least one slave, Onesimus. That slave, that word Onesimus, 
is a name often given by masters to slaves. It means beneficial or useful. And Paul will play on that meaning of that name a couple of times in the letter. Uh, And we know from the end of this letter that Philemon apparently was brought to the Lord through Paul's ministry. Because Paul will tell that, you know, that owing me even your own self seems to be there. So we have Philemon, significant member of seems in the church. And then we've got Onesimus, the slave. And what we learn is that Onesimus has run away from what he says about owing you anything. He may have helped himself to some traveling funds on the way before he gets out the door. And he is gone. And for whatever reason, however it happens, he comes in with contact with Paul, whether it's one of those divine coincidences that happen or, or Onesimus has gotten far enough away and realized, I'm in really deep trouble here. And he seeks out Paul. Whatever happens, Paul is in prison at that time. And Paul uh, apparently is in a, like a house arrest situation where he can have guests or people in. And during that time, Onesimus is brought to the Lord by Paul. And so we hear in the letter that Paul is sending Onesimus back to him. And it's what's interesting is that that letter then, where Paul says it, probably came with the same people with Onesimus who come back. So Paul is sending this letter, and Onesimus is returning with the letter, so they both arrive at the same time. Big word is happening in the church and the spread is that for some people it's saying, Paul, there's a letter from Paul. Oh yeah, remember that slave guy he came back to. I'm thinking down on the slavery side of things, the word is, can you believe that Onesimus came back? What's wrong with him? He could die from this. Oh yeah, Paul wrote a letter too. What we think we know, what seems to be the case is when a letter from Paul came to the church, the church came together and this letter was read aloud to the church. Think of the tension that is there at that meeting. There are slaves that are a member of that church. I wonder what Paul's going to say. There are masters that are part of that church. What is Paul going to say? Think about it, you got, it's his house, so you, you just put Philemon here in his, uh, his lazy boy. It's his, his chair, favorite chair. And the other people are gathering around on benches or stools or a piece of carpet to hear this. And somebody's going to read this letter, and Philemon's over here, or I mean Philemon's here, and maybe Onesimus, I don't know if he's up by the person who reads the letter, or is he sitting over there? Have there been glances cast? Is, is Onesimus looking at Philemon to see what's on his face? How angry at me is he? There's tension in this room. And in the midst of this, Paul's presence is mediated by his letter as he speaks to them. And here's just the beginning of that letter and what it's going to be said. It's, you know, there's Philemon. Paul says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, 
our fellow, uh, fellow soldier, and to the church which meets in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. For I hear of your love and the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And my prayer, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may be effective for the knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy from you, my brother, from your love. For the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, whose father I became in my imprisonment, Onesimus. Formerly he was useless to you. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you. Sending my own heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me so that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Yet I prefer to do nothing without your consent so that your goodness might be not by compulsion, but of your own accord. Perhaps, for this reason, he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me, even your own life. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write you knowing that you'll do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke, my, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. N.T. Wright says, 
If nothing else came about from Christianity, nothing ever else survived, but this letter was dug up by archaeologists, they would see and, and scholars would say that something earth-shattering is happening here. This is not the way the world works. It still would be criticized because Paul didn't say, free the slaves. And we wonder what Paul said, that you'll do even more than what I ask. I hope that's free the slave. But it could be just, I hope you'll send him back to serve me while I'm in prison. We don't know. But the issue is, the letter is not about slavery. The letter is about reconciliation. The bringing together of those lost into community. That we become this reconciling and reconciled community. This is the place where those who are lost and are found greet one another as beloved brothers, beloved sisters, and we start putting on their dancing shoes. This is not a simple celebration. Philemon has a decision to make. How will he respond to Paul's letters? What will he do with Onesimus? It's not, that's not only the, that's maybe not the hard part. The hard part is Philemon wrestling with his culture. Everything he has known from his birth up to however old he is now says that there are those who rule and there are those who are ruled. And the way you keep those who are ruled in check is by violence. You're expected to make a model for what's going on in your household. Are there other slaves? You've got to show what happens when a slave runs, runs away. You can't just let him come back scot-free, can you? And think of Philemon. He seems to be an upper-class, wealthier guy. This could cost him in his business dealings. This could cost him when the you know, local businessmen's associations. He may not be invited to some meals now or other people because they all expect Philemon to do the right thing. And the right thing is at the level that this guy at least should be maimed, maybe killed because you're responsible for setting a standard for the whole area. Slaves need to hear that this is what happens when you run away. I think, I think Ones, or Philemon made the right decision. A couple of little things we think about historically, but I'm just going to base it on Paul's confidence. Paul seems confident, he says, that you will do even more than I say. That, that he is going to bring that slave into community. That is, the one who is lost has been found. And now you don't have the older brother walking away from the father and his brother. You have the older brother feasting. He's got the house. He's got the resources. If he's got a fatted calf, he's bringing it in. Call the people. Musicians, get your instruments. It's time to party and celebrate. It is like well, we recently had a celebration of adoption. There's a new member in our family. It's time to party. I got a, in my house, 
something happens, sometimes frequently. Rebecca has come over, and we're sitting at the counter in the kitchen, and, uh, and we're discussing some issue of Scripture maybe and wrestling around with some grammar or trying to understand some words and we get worn out doing that. Or we start talking about the world situation and solving that, and that gets very depressing. And we start talking about America politics, and that becomes even more depressing more quickly. And at some point, one of us will just shout out, Where's the party? And in a few seconds, Robin comes dancing into the room saying, I'm the party. I bring the party. And if you quickly tell Alexa, turn up the volume and play Glory by Common and John Legend, she goes into her glory dance. And her head's back and her hands are up and she's spinning into circles. And in those circles, there are circles in... You've never seen anything. The glory dance is a sight to behold. That's us. Every one of us. Every room we enter, we bring the party. We are the party. We are the visible representation of what God is doing. In whatever room we enter, we bring the new. We bring God's party. We bring an invitation to his party. We bring the new thing God is doing, the new creation. We bring salvation. We bring reconciliation. We bring God's party everywhere we go. So, as you go, take invitations. You're going to want to invite people. And if if you forgot to write them all down, just tell them they're invited to a party. Number two, bring your dancing shoes because you never know when the glory dance is starting to break out. And number three, live the party. Just live the party. Let's pray. God, our Father, you are so magnificent. You've given us so much, so abundantly, so graciously. Uh, We're overwhelmed with your goodness and your call for us to experience that salvation in community with brothers and sisters together. Thank you, God, for calling us, inviting us, to your party.